Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. This edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 25th of October 2023. I'm Peter Wolf uh, in the programme to come. Um, we're uh, having been in the uh, Paxton Arboretum for some time, looking at the stories of people who are buried there. Uh, we're close by this week uh, with Robert Stevenson's viaduct, which is very close, and the loop line that stems from it. Do you remember the Freeman's catalogues over the years? Well, now they're only online, um, but their story uh, we're hearing from Bill. Um, and another loss recently uh, was the great chat show host and journalist Michael Parkinson. Uh, we've got a story, uh, a, a tribute to him, um, read by Elaine. Um, and we're also looking at Guy Fawkes. Uh, with November 5th coming up, and of course that's a very Coventry story, in fact. Um, and um, we've got more social history with the hurdy-gurdy days, and Dave's been telling us about a recent Sharabank mystery tour he went on with the Macular Society. All that uh, in a minute or two, but first the news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. Coventry could be told it needs to build thousands more homes than it has room for if government policies don't change. The council is planning for 29,000 new homes between 2021 and 2041, which it believes can come close to achieving without releasing more Greenbelt. But under the government's 35% uplift, it will have to build 39,000 houses in the same time period, meaning other councils would have to step in to help. And if the government doesn't change its default way of calculating housing need, then the city would face providing over 60,000 homes by 2041. This could have a knock-on effect on the city's greenbelt, which was lost to housing developments in 2017, due to the same calculation method, based on incorrect 2014 population estimates. Speaking at a recent meeting, Councillor David Welsh confirmed the Council had set out housing options in planned changes to its local plan. This includes basing it on data from the 2021 census released last year, showing Coventry has grown by much less than predicted. We would oppose the government's arbitrary 35% uplift. That's just a figure they have plucked out of the air. If we are forced to build 60,000 houses in the city, I think that's unachievable without Greenbelt. Councillor Welsh later said there's no way Coventry could build 60,000 new homes if it ends up being told these are needed. There's also no indication the government will abolish the 35% hike on cities introduced three years ago, to help meet its national target of 300,000 new homes by the mid-2020s. Back in 2017, Coventry and Warwickshire councils used what was then the most up-to-date data, including the 2014 estimate, to come up with a housing need of over 42,000 for the city. It was agreed Coventry couldn't take this alone, so the city aimed to build around 25,000 new homes by 2031, 
with Warwickshire councils taking on 18,000. The move also led to Coventry's first urban expansion in 50 years, with 10% of its greenbelt lost to new homes. But last year, new 2021 census figures were released, showing Coventry's population growth was far less than predicted. Coventry and Warwickshire councils have now used this to come up with new figures on the homes they need to build by 2041, which are being used in updated local plans. Home Secretary Suella Braverman swapped Westminster for Woberley when she joined police on a series of raids this week. The Cabinet Minister spent time with West Midlands police officers during a crackdown on County Lines drug dealing operations in the city. Ms Braverman was in attendance as officers from Coventry Police joined specialist colleagues to execute five warrants across the city. Several cannabis factories with a combined street value of more than £850,000 were reportedly shut down. More than 850 plants and nearly 6 kilograms, 13 pounds, of dried cannabis were recovered. The raids form part of a national effort to disrupt county lines gangs which tend to deliver drugs from densely populated cities to smaller towns and rural areas, often exploiting young, vulnerable people along the way. More than 1,600 suspected members of county lines drug-dealing gangs were arrested across England and Wales during the one-week initiative. Class A drugs worth £1.2 million, the same amount in cash, and more than 100 kilograms, £220, of cannabis were seized. A total of 458 weapons were seized, including 33 firearms, 377 knives, 3 crossbows, 21 batons and 28 knuckle dusters and 250 phone lines were closed down. A total of 710 people, including 58 children, were referred to safeguarding services as possible victims of exploitation by the gangs. County lines dealers used dedicated phone lines to take orders from customers. They are notorious for exploiting children to work as drug runners and for taking over the homes of vulnerable people to store illegal substances. Since a national county lines programme was launched in 2019, 4,755 lines have been closed, 14,887 arrests made and 7,267 children or vulnerable people referred to safeguarding services. Mr Brogdon said the reality of being in a county lines gang is nothing like that portrayed in popular TV series such as Toy Boy. Series such as Toy Boy glamorise what's effectively a life of crime, he said. This is violence. This is exploitation. This is not being a gangster. It's being about, about being exploited and being drawn into a life of crime, often that ends in misery. It's incredibly violent. It's an unsafe place to be. More job vacancies are opening up in Coventry and Warwickshire, according to new research, which suggests the region's economic outlook has improved markedly. The poll of businesses run by the Coventry and Warwickshire Chamber of Commerce shows a jump in confidence in the manufacturing and services sectors. The latest quarterly economic survey is analysed by the Economy and Skills Group at Warwickshire County Council. It gives scores out of 100, where anything above 50 is positive and below is negative. 
The economic outlook now sits at 62.3 following the third quarter survey, up from 50.6 in the second quarter of the year. The manufacturing sector saw the biggest leap from 52.7 up to 71.5. Domestically and internationally, manufacturers in Coventry and Warwickshire have seen a strong improvement in sales. Both manufacturing and service sectors reported a need to recruit, while investment and cash flow have also seen an upturn in the past three months. Steve Harcourt, Director of Prime Accountants and Vice President of the Chamber, said, It is great to see such a bounce back in confidence among Chamber members. That is, more than likely, due to the fact that inflation is coming down from its peak and firms feel that they can start to plan for the future. Coventry and Warwickshire businesses have proved to be extremely resilient over the last three or four years in the face of unprecedented events which have led to growing uncertainty. That is why our economy in the region has remained pretty stable. But what we'd like to see now is a real drive for growth and this latest survey suggests that there could be a possibility in the not-too-distant future. Furious traders are demanding that the council scraps road layout changes at a shopping district just outside the city centre. A petition presented to the city council claims that the changes have already forced some businesses to close permanently and that the only benefit of the scheme is for the council to issue parking tickets. The Experimental Traffic Regulation Order, TRO, was introduced on Far Gosford Street six months ago to try and improve safety and traffic flow in the area. The report adds that this was in response to concerns raised by police and a bus operator due to incidents and delays caused by drivers parking obstructively on double yellow lines. Access arrangements were changed, some roads were made one way and changes were made to where drivers could park as well as load or unload vehicles. A petition calling on the council to reverse the charges has been signed by 45 people and states that it is on behalf of the shop owners and traders of Falkosford Street. It claims the scheme has been an unmitigated disaster for the revenue flows of businesses and it adds, many are now struggling to survive as a result of the traffic changes. Some have already closed. The petition states... Mm -hmm. The only benefit that's being derived from this fiasco is that the council, having restricted parking, is now engaged in a ferocious exercise in handing out as many parking tickets as they can. The council will know that you can't keep handing out hundreds of parking tickets a week and expect the area where they're being handed out to become a vibrant economic hub. Council officers have agreed that the current TRO should be scrapped, but they don't recommend reverting the road layout to what it was before. Instead, they're recommending a new experimental TRO to be implemented. The changes would once again be monitored, and traders can have their say on the effect before they become permanent. New high-rise flats will be built by Coventry's medieval city wall amid plans to look further into the site's history and open it up to the public. Two blocks of up to 20 storeys high will go on land off the city's ring road after the scheme got final approvement last week. The development of Paradise Street will have 303 homes, mostly one and two bedroom flats, of which 15% will be sold at less than market rate.
Some commercial space and car parking is also planned, with a handful of industrial buildings knocked down to make way for the project. The land leased by Coventry Council to Rainier Developments was originally set for almost 500 homes and new industrial buildings to replace those lost. But plans changed last year after archaeologists discovered a larger section than expected of the 500-year-old city wall buried beneath the site. They also uncovered part of the old city ditch together with musket balls likely to date back to the Civil War. Developers said this made the site very constrained and only half could be developed due to the need for a buffer zone to the wall. Another part of the city wall runs across the site, but despite being above ground is currently hidden from view. This stretch will be opened up to the public as part of a landscaping area between the buildings and the car park. The site's historical significance also means that a plan to manage archaeological investigations has to be sent in before work can start, according to the Council's notice of the decision. It will have details of how work will take place, methods to recover historical items and where they will go once the investigations finish. Members of the public will also be involved when field work takes place, including open days and tours, and after it finishes, with talks, interpretation boards and other means of engagement. Changes to parking fees in Coventry won't affect most people, the councillor has claimed, after being challenged on the controversial move at a public meeting. Cheaper evening and Sunday rates for over 3,500 spaces in the city were scrapped by the council last month. The rise in charges at these times will bring the council £164,000 extra per year as it faces filling a £12 million gap in this year's budget. But it was met with criticism from the Conservative opposition, with Shadow Cabinet member Councillor Matty Heaven telling local media, we definitely do not agree with this, this decision. Councillor Heaven asked Labour's Cabinet Member for City Services, Councillor Patricia Heatherton, to undo the move at a full council meeting this week. There is huge outrage with the residents, especially as it's going to be implemented next month ahead of Christmas, she said. And part of this implementation is affecting our night economy, because there are going to be charges after 6pm around the city centre. And on Sundays, where there used to be a low price to encourage people to come to the city centre, that too will be charged. But in her reply, Councillor Heatherton claimed that there had been a misrepresentation and a media storm about things that aren't happening in the city. You come into the city 8 o'clock on a Monday morning and maybe finish 6 o'clock on a Saturday night. You will not pay one penny more for those car park spaces, she said. Sundays are significantly quieter. Evenings, yes, you're paying more, but would it be fair to put that burden onto the people that use it the most, Saturday, Monday to Saturday? And we think the answer is no. Parking fees are set to change in 17 Coventry car parks run by the council next month. The lower evening rate after 6pm has been axed, as has a fixed fee on Sundays that will allow shoppers to stay all day for a cheaper price. Two Coventry centre, City Centre car parks, the Barracks Multi-Story and City Arcade Rooftop, 
will close in the coming months as work starts on the City Centre South scheme. To reduce the impact on shoppers, Salt Lane multi-storey will be reclassified as a short-stay car park, making it cheaper for shorter periods. A huge 690-home scheme in Coventry will be built after developers won an appeal against the council. Coventry Council will also have to pay part of the developers' appeal costs after an inspector found it had behaved unreasonably in some areas. Plans for housing blocks on the old Transco gasworks at Abbots Lane in Cowden were turned down by Coventry's planning committee last year. It followed an outcry from residents against the scheme with 97 people signing a petition and plans were also criticised by the head teacher of nearby St Osberg's school. But Coventry Council officers had recommended plans get the go-ahead and the Coventry Society also voiced their support. Moves to get the site ready for housing and develop a linear park nearby have also had funding from the West Midlands Combined Authority, according to a report. Following an inquiry and site visits over the summer, a government inspector allowed the appeal with conditions in a ruling last week, meaning 212 of the homes now have full permission to be built and 478 have only outline permission, meaning more details need to be approved before work can start. The scheme, called Abbott's Park, will be made up of seven blocks between four and 21 storeys high and include commercial or other service space. In his review of the plans, the inspector dealt with a range of concerns, including its appearance, effect on parking and traffic, and the type of homes provided. He concluded the scheme is of a very high standard of design. The development has spaces which could be a car-free zone and would likely improve road safety, he said. On housing mix, he said people of all ages, including families, often go for one to two bedroom homes, so it won't just be occupied by graduates and other young people. On concerns about using contaminated land for housing, the inspector said plans include remedial work to prepare the site for housing. In his view, reusing the site in a positive way would be far better than leaving it derelict and unused and left to fester in its contaminated state. He concluded the scheme complies with local policies and stressed the massive benefits it will have. It is obvious from the foregoing that there are no adverse impacts that would result from the proposal that will come anywhere near outweighing the massive benefits that the scheme would deliver. A plan to build a new police custody suite in Coventry has been scrapped as part of a raft of changes to how West Midlands police buildings are used across the region. The city centre police station will also be moved under the plans. It's to be relocated within the city centre and will continue to provide a public contact office and a base for neighbourhood policing teams. The existing building will not be disposed of until a suitable alternative building has been found. West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner Simon Foster said Coventry will also get a newly refurbished police building at Willenhall in Chase Avenue and this will house neighbourhood policing teams, 
response officers and a custody suite. He said money would be saved by not building a new custody suite in the city instead. Existing custody suites have been reopened at Blockswich in Walsall and Stetchford in East Birmingham. The Commissioner has approved the plans based on independent and impartial operational policing proposals made by the Chief Constable, Craig Guilford. The plans will, will mean that there will be 10 public contact officers across the West Midlands. These are police stations at which members of the public can attend, speak to a police officer and report crime. A Coventry man claims a protester threatened to behead him. Vahid Beheshtai took to X, formerly known as Twitter, to say that police saved him from certain death after he claimed to have been attacked by the supporters of organisations such as Hamas, Hezbollah and the Islamic Republic. The activist and journalist, who is married to Coventry City Councillor Matty Heaven, staged a hunger strike outside the UK Foreign Office for 72 days. He has since returned to continue his protest against the paramilitary branch of the Iranian Armed Forces. The Iranian expatriate and journalist has been there for 234 days as of Sunday. The 46-year-old, who says that he is pro-Palestinian, but opposed to Hamas, said his protest camp on Prince Charles Street in London was repeatedly targeted during last Saturday's march in the capital. The Iranian expatriate said that a small group of protesters were angered because there was an Israeli flag at the camp, which he has flown since the wave of attacks launched by Hamas. Metropolitan police officers had to form a barricade in front of him and his fellow anti-Iranian regime activists. Dozens of protesters confronted him and some issued threats. Mr. Beheshtai said those trying to remove the flag, flown alongside the Ukrainian flag, were opposed to British values of democracy. One of these pro-Palestinian protesters threatened to behead me before being arrested and being found in possession of a knife. We are losing our democracy. They come to the middle of London and are forcing us to take this flag down. We can't let this happen. These are British values of democracy. A new music shop and a miniature garden centre are blooming into life at Coventry's Fargo Village in the city's creative quarter, where three other businesses are expanding at the popular location. AM Music was launched to sell instruments and music equipment and provide lessons in a soundproof studio offering tuition on drums, piano, saxophone and guitar. Former secondary school music teacher Aaron Maloney set up AM Music School and Instrument Shop after organising the jazz jam sessions and music events at Fargo Village. He said, I love the jazz jam events and I thought Fargo Village would be the perfect fit for what I wanted to do. There isn't a music shop in Coventry City Centre anymore apart from a guitar shop and certainly nowhere you can buy drums and I wanted to teach in an enjoyable environment. Our lessons are open for anyone. Our youngest student is seven and the oldest 65 and the business is going really well. While Black Flag Horticulture specialises in selling garden and horticultural products, including plants suitable for a, 
for a window box or a garden. Other existing businesses have expanded in the area as well. Art Riot Collective is currently supporting three artists to have their own artist studio space and gallery space situated in the market hall area of Fargo Village. Sustainable Fashion Skate Shop Project Number 5 has moved to Container 12 and will be introducing a skateboard ramp to create a skating destination. While BIB Noodle Bar has expanded into Unit 13D as part of its growth plans. James King of Black Flag Horticulture said there was a real focus from him and store manager Mark Wilson on encouraging those with limited outdoor space to grow their own plants. He said, I think gardening should be accessible to more people because even if you have a small space, such as a window ledge in a flat, you can get involved and and it's extremely satisfying to watch the fruits of your labour grow. Coventry's Herbert Art Gallery and Museum has been selected to host a world-renowned photography exhibition showcasing stunning wildlife from across the globe. The incredible images from this year's Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition will be on show at the museum from Friday, October the 27th. The exhibition is on loan from London's Natural History Museum until April the 1st and shines a spotlight on fascinating species from across the globe. The museum will be the only English venue, besides the Natural History Museum, to host the Lightbox edition, which will see the images brought to life in a vibrant digital display. The Wildlife Photographer of the Year was launched in 1965 and is the most prestigious photography event of its kind with almost 50,000 people from 95 countries entering the competitions. Visit www.herbert.org for more information. Outlook News Thanks to Elaine uh, for the news. Um, moving on, we're going to just quickly have the uh, lighting up time. Sunrise is 7.49 a.m. this week, sunset 5.52 p.m. Um, and this weekend, don't forget, the clocks go back one hour on Saturday night. Um, I'm sure Hugh won't forget. Um, but he's here now with this week's resource news. Thank you very much, Pete. No, I certainly won't forget. And we are... Uh, as ever, on hand to help you uh, change your talking watches uh, back to the right hour if you would need that help. So do, uh, please, when you're next into the centre, uh, some people have been asking before the weekend for me to change their uh, watches and clocks so they uh, uh, are ready. Uh, but if after the weekend you are struggling to change the hour on your talking watch, and it's a little bit more difficult on many of them to go back an hour than it is forward, uh, then... Uh, uh, ask Heather or me uh, or Joe and we can probably sort that out for you. We're pretty pretty swift at it now. Um, 
We've got, we have a very busy day here today at the Resource Centre. It's absolutely fabulous. We had the walking group uh, this morning and we've got the craft group this afternoon, of course, which is our, our usual Wednesday activities. But uh, we're also hosting today the sensory support team. Now, this is the uh, council team who uh, support kids with visual impairments um, and hearing impairments as it happens, but they're focusing on, on visual impairments today. And they're doing a, a day-long training session for teachers and teachers assistance um, in Coventry for people who are teaching kids with visual impairments and it's been absolutely magnificent there's about 20 people attending this course all sitting in the Boston Lodge lounge crammed up and very warm uh, but they're, they're learning all about um, what it's like to be visually impaired uh, as a kid and some of the tips and techniques to think about to help uh, help the kids that they're teaching so it's, it's been you know terrific uh, we get on very well with that team we do quite a lot we often have um, uh, kids who are being supported by the sensory support team coming into the uh, kitchen to learn how to cook and everything like that so we're delighted to have them uh, on board today and I really hope that's the first of uh, many um, training uh, days that they do here uh, we have uh, a new group starting uh, on the 20th of November, which is a Monday. It's the third Monday of the month, and the group is being called the M3 group. M for Monday, 3 for the third of the month. Uh, and uh, it starts at 6.30pm, so it's an evening group, and it's a monthly group. Um, and uh, for most of you listening, this is going to be a tremendous disappointment, but it is uh, for people up to the age of 40-ish. Um, uh, and it's uh, basically a youth, youthish, youthish group. Mind you, from the perspective of everybody sitting in this studio, I can tell you that 40 is young. Uh, so I wish I, I was 40. Uh, no. Yes. <laughs> I wish I could remember being yeah, 40. And <laughs> You're uh, angering for compliments there. Oh, yes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, but uh, So uh, if you are in that age group or you know a visually impaired person who is, uh, we are looking for participants to take part in it. We've, also got, we've all already got a number of people signed up. Um, it's uh, an evening group. I say evening group, so it's going to be there's going to be food. It might be pizzas, it might be baked potatoes, it might be fish and chips, or whatever uh, that we brought in. Um, and then uh, there'll be somebody uh, to do a talk, have a bit of chat. So it's a social group. Uh, we're starting off with um, Kevin from Fab Lab, who's a woodworker, uh, and um, he's used to working uh, with people with visual impairments. So he's coming to sort of talk about that. Um, and we're hoping to have, for example. Uh, there's a lady that we're hoping to entice who uh, does job coaching for people with visual impairments and etc etc so it's, it's definitely designed so it starts at 6.30 the reason it starts that early is so it'll be finished by about 8.30 and then everybody can hightail high themselves off down to the pub for a bit more um, relaxed and lubricated socialising so that'll be uh, that'll be fun. Uh, so if uh, you are you fall in that age group, you're 18 to 40-ish, um, and uh, we'll be a little liberal about that, but not too liberal. So um, you know, if you might be 70 and feeding 40, but that's not good enough. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I'll need a birth certificate. Uh, <laughs> you can get in there. Be like voting, won't you? Be like voting exactly. <laughs> You've got a proof of identity. <laughs> Um, so, we are talking now uh, about... Right, so, the 11th of November, 
uh, we have got, uh, we'll probably, we'll, we are going to have an event um, here. That's uh, Remembrance Day. Uh, we're going to have an installation of poppies that has been organised by Joe Proctor. Uh, I'm not going to give you much detail about it uh, for the moment, but um, next week I will, and we will uh, give you a lot more information about that and about how to take part if you wish to, but it's going to be spectacular. Impressive. It's going to be impressive. So we'll give you more information about that uh, next week and uh, but if you if you fancy um, uh, uh, attending that installation event, then I suggest uh, keeping that date free. Another date to keep free is the 2nd of December. I talked about this last week, which is our winter warmer. And we're going to have um, food and stalls and games and the charity shop will be open. Uh, in terms of the games and stuff, or game stall, whatever, we're going to have a bottle tombola, which is slightly different, I think, from... from uh, a more generalised sort of tombola that uh, we had last year. Now, this is me begging again. Um, if anybody has any bottles of any kind, and these could be anything from a fruit shoot drink up to a, mm. Uh, mm. A, a, magnum. a magnum of champagne or a vintage bottle of whiskey, whatever, that they feel like donating, uh, then uh, we would be very pleased to see it. We're going to run it so that it's uh, a, a bottle tombola with a guaranteed prize. Now, we're not guaranteeing that the bottle is going to be mm. a guaranteed, the bottle is going to be a <laughs> guaranteed prize but there may be a little a little gift alongside uh, if you don't get one of the one of the bottle prizes but uh, yeah we're looking forward to that uh, I know actually that we have a stash of really rather good bottles already um, so we'll be uh, looking forward to running that we're also going to have a nearly new stroke new items um, stall for the gift table provided uh, that uh, we get such uh, such donations from you wonderful people so if you have um, anything perhaps that you've been given that's in an absolutely pristine condition and uh, you would like to offload and you don't think you can give it to anybody that you know this Christmas. <laughs> you know, it's the gift merry-go-round, isn't it, sometimes? Um, but uh, anyway, if you've got any uh, anything that you think you could donate to us, things like, um, you know, soap and hand gel sets and hand cream and or you know perfumes or whatever you know these you know the boxed up things or any anything at all that's new that you think would you know would be would would sell then uh, that would be terrific now we're also going to have a stall for jams and chutneys and cakes uh, and again, I'm begging, if you've been making jam or if you've got family who've been making jam, uh, we'd be very pleased to have a, a jar or two of it. Um, I've been making uh, quince jelly, which I should mm. be donating. Um, and I'm make, I've been also making quince cheese or membrillo, the, uh, mm. the Spanish hard version of that, which um, I may donate a bit towards the charity may, may donate a bit may donate a bit <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> we'll see we'll see um, anyway uh, so if you've got any of those to donate we'll be very pleased to hear them hear, hear, have them also cakes uh, working for cakes for sale things like fruit cakes and uh, nothing with cream or anything like that in uh, lemon drizzle cakes those are good uh, any of those uh, sponge style cakes the cakes that you can make beforehand and actually you can just chuck them in the freezer uh, and then if we get them like the day before for, uh, they're they're excellent, very good for um, uh, for the 
uh, for the sale day then and uh, we'd thank you very much for that um, if anybody does is making sort of cakey chocolatey things perhaps um, then those we would certainly accept for the cafe uh, side of the day um, so we can supply cakes um, to the th- hoarding throngs is that right? No, the thronging hordes. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I nearly, nearly, nearly <laughs> had that right. <laughs> yes, Mr. Spooner strikes again. At the cafe itself, uh, we're going to be uh, there. Going to be soups, and I can guarantee you that there will be spiced pumpkin soup, uh, and I can guarantee you that the pumpkin will be off our plot. Mm. Uh, not the least because I have 17 of them sitting in my house at the moment, and I need to get rid of them. So. And it was particularly delicious last year. It was particularly well. It's always a, it's a, a favourite soup. It's a favourite soup. However, um, I, we always like to have a couple of soup options, and uh, this year. Uh, I'm going to take suggestions for the other one. So if anybody has any ideas about what soup they'd like, uh, then uh, do, uh, you know, providing it's not lobster, beast, um, <laughs> or any other expensive <coughs> ingredient, uh, I would, you know, I'd be really happy to, to, to give that a go. So if you've got any favourite soups, you think, oh, do you know, I'd really like to see if we could do that, then... Um, let me know. I did make a very good minestrone the other day, if I say so myself, and uh, it was um, so that that could be one of the options. But you know, choose whatever you will. Uh, and also, there'll be uh, pork and stuffing batches and the usual uh, range of um, goods that we sell on the day: tea, coffee, uh, mulled wine, and uh, Bailey's coffee. We're looking for volunteers for the day as well. Oh, I forgot to mention. Now, last year we had we had uh, we had a board made uh, for the Elfie selfie. We called it. So it's a picture of an elf with a face cut out, and we want people to stick their heads in in the hole and um, have a photo taken on their own mobile phone. And what we're going to do is we've just launched a new Instagram site. And when I say just launched, I mean we've signed up to Instagram, and we have a young person who's doing that for us, Zach, who I mentioned last week. But what we're going to do is we're going to try and uh, uh, do something with the Elfie, sel- Elfie Selfie on, on Instagram, uh, and try and give a prize for the most likes or shares or whatever it is that happens on on Instagram. It's definitely a, a social media thing, but anyway. Uh, so, that's, so that'll be that. Now, um... It's it's a bit inevitable at the moment, but I have funeral news, unfortunately. Um, uh, I told you last week uh, of the uh, sad death of Elizabeth Alden, who was uh, who came to Monday Club in particular. Um, her funeral uh, is on the 30th of November at 12pm at uh, Canley Crematorium. Uh, we may well be, well, there'll certainly be um, a presence from uh, from the resource centre there, and I know a number of members of the Monday Club would like to go. If we're able to, we will um, see if we can get a bus together. If not, we'll, uh, we'll gather people in cars and uh, uh, go to the funeral. Um, on Monday, just gone, uh, we went to the um, funeral of Christine Williams, who was one of the volunteer Braille teachers uh, down in uh, Lemington or Lillington, in fact. And that was just a, you know, as far as funerals go, a wonderful funeral. We had um, a very full church, and uh, the family, uh, all members of the family, gave a very moving and different tributes to their mum, uh, who was kind, selfless, all the virtues, really, intelligent. Uh, and we knew her to be such here at the Resource Centre. So uh, it was a, you know, a, 
a very affectionate, um, sad but also fond farewell to Christine. And um, we had 16 people from the resource centre go to that funeral, uh, mostly from the Braille group where she taught. But um, you know, we you know we will certainly miss Christine very greatly. And alas, I have a, um, another uh, death to report um, that of Jean Jones. Um, Jean uh, died on Monday, the 23rd. Uh, she uh, used to come to the Tuesday computers quite a lot, but many of you actually will remember Mark Jones, her son, uh, who was one of our minibus drivers for um, a year or two uh, and who moved away uh, well, gosh, a couple of years ago at least uh, down to Cornwall. Um, we don't have a funeral date uh, yet for Jean, uh, but as we as soon as we do, then we will let you know. And although, I'm sorry to leave that on a sad note, but... That's where we are at the moment with uh, with funerals, too many of them. Uh, but anyway, well, hopefully I'll be back with good news and better news next week. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. Um, a lot going on, of course, as usual. Despite the disappointment of our very close loss in the rugby semis, here, here, Sarah has dried her eyes to bring you this week's Sports Roundup. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome to this week's sport. <clears throat> yes. Right. I'm going to start off with football, as I usually do, and I'm going to start go down the league. So I'll start off at the very top. On Tuesday, England played Italy. Now, this match really mattered because it wasn't a friendly like the one we played against Australia. It was, a, it was a qualifier for the European Championships 2024. Well, I switched on a few minutes late. I was engrossed in an audio book. I blame Richard Osmond. And by that stage, Italy were already 1-0 up. Hey-ho, here we go again. But then, in the 30-something minute... We got a penalty, an upset Captain Kane. Goal! So we go in at half-time, one goal all. But then England really woke up and turned on the heat. First of all, Marcus Rashford added a second. Before that man, Captain Harry Kane, scores a third, his second of the match. Germany, here we come. That's where the Euros are next year. I have to say a big congratulations also to Scotland who haven't qualified for many of these big championships recently, but they're there as well. So we know we've got at least two of the home nations. Now come on, Wales and Northern Ireland, you can do it. Now... Going down to our highest league club, Coventry City. They travelled down south on Saturday. Well, the match started and we were really on fire. The commentators were saying, why aren't we 2, 3 or 4 nil up playing like this? Well, we went, but they scored just before half-time. And the second half was, well, pretty 
pretty boring actually to listen to and so it finished 1-0. Now Wednesday, the day we record this programme, Coventry are going up north to Rotherham but then they are away again. That's three matches in succession next Saturday to Preston North End. Kick-off is at 3pm if you want to listen to it on the radio or if you wish to travel there. But I'm pretty sure last year I reported that Preston are really one of our bogey teams, or I know that for a fact, and we haven't won there for squidlions of years. Oh, well. Now, going down to the third division, but of the women's game now, Rugby Borough Women, who you may remember, are the renamed Coventry United Women. Played Portsmouth and lost one goal to nil. Oh dear. Well, anyway, let's go to the non-league, which I always think is a bit of a joke because they are in a league. It's just not in one of the big leagues. Well... Bit better there, a lot better in fact. Nuneaton beat Redditch 2-0. Stratford Town beat St Ives Town 1-0. But Leamington weren't playing because they were due to travel to Needham Market. But the match was postponed due to a waterlogged pitch. We must have had a lot of rain. And now our turn to rugby. You know, the ga- the ovoid-shaped ball game in the Code of Union. Right, starting with Coventry. It was the first match of the season for the Premier and Championship clubs. That is, those in the first and second divisions. But not for Coventry. Now, Coventry had been due to play Jersey Reds. But as I told you a few weeks ago, where are you listening? Jersey Reds sadly have gone into administration. But never mind, our lads still flew to Jersey. They posted loads of lovely pictures, obviously taken well in advance, of the island. And they ran a very soggy training session for the juniors of Jersey Rugby Club <laughs> in, shall we say, Storm Babette. Say no more. So, let's go on to the World Cup. We can't get away from it. Right, in the match on the Friday, Argentina played New Zealand with a score of six points to 44. And it was as one-sided as the score suggests, New Zealand were just absolutely brilliant, although they didn't have to be that good because Argentina, well, should we just say they didn't really turn up? Although at one stage, to give them credit, Argentina actually led because they scored after just a few minutes with a penalty kick, three points, so the score was Argentina 3, New Zealand 0 for probably a couple of minutes. On the Saturday, 
England played South Africa. Now, coincidentally, England had also played South Africa that day in the One Day International Cricket World Championships. Hmm, could this be an omen? Well, I did hope not. In the cricket, South Africa scored 399 for seven. Pretty much a record. And in response, England were bowled out, all out, for 170, handing South Africa a 229-run victory. Oh, man, surely not an omen. Anyway, don't be silly. There are no such things as omens. So, what about the rugby? Well, it all started so well. That man I mentioned last week, Owen Farrell, our kicker, also the England captain, also the son of the Irish manager, scored points after points after points and an amazing drop goal from nearly the halfway line took us to 15 points to six with probably about 10 minutes left on the clock. Come on, ye England! Well, <clears throat> then South Africa scored a try and converted it, which meant seven points. So the score going into the final few minutes was 15 points England, 13 points South Africa. But sadly, all English hearts that like rugby were broken when South Africa got a penalty, thanks to England messing up, and scored three more points South Africa, meaning the match ended South Africa 16 England 15. Now, if you're a glutton for punishment, on Friday, England play in the playoffs against Argentina. And then on Saturday, South Africa play New Zealand. Oh, I've just had a thought. The advantage of England playing on the Friday means that I can actually watch the whole of Strictly which you need to do when you're backing five people and they're all still in it. Come on, Angela, you can do it. Age is no barrier. And finally, unreal, crazy, nuts, incredible, Hollywood stuff. Frankie de Torre's reaction after celebrating his farewell to British Racing with a double triumph at Ascot. The 52-year-old, I know 52, had his last ride in Britain, winning with a fine last-minute victory on King of Steel in the Champion Stakes. He'd earlier won, very unlikely, on Trawler Man, who started off something like 99 to 1 outsider. Well, it, this was Frankie, 
and as he rode into the collecting ring for the final time, the crowd at Ascot sang, Oh, Frankie de Tory, oh, Frankie de Tory. And then Queen Camilla unveiled a life-size statue to the jockey, again in pride of place at Ascot. It was due, I have to say, to be his actual retirement from racing, but he's decided to race in the States for a year or so. But as me and Pete were discussing today in IT, these sports people never retire. Remember Katerina Johnson-Thompson's retirement? She came back and won the gold in the World Championships. So who says we won't be seeing young Mr. Dottori on British soils again? Well, that's it from me and sport. So have a great week and don't have nightmares about the City Football Club. OK, bye. And from sport, we move to your spot in Outlook, Postgrag with Dave. This is Postback. Join in the discussion. Hello there, we begin your postbag this week with a message for Rosie from Derek. Hi, here's a message for Rose. Delighted to hear your leaving party was a success. I will miss our chats. Keep smiling, all my best wishes. And we send our best wishes to Rosie, and it's nice to hear from you, Derek. Please talk to us again soon. Although Julia didn't know Rosie that well, she does send her good wishes to her in her latest report, entitled A Night with Christ the King. I thought that Charles was the king, but I must be wrong. We went to the Gateway Club for the Harvest Festival. They were selling things like food, and all the money goes to charity, but nobody knows which one. My friend John says he's a charity, but I think he's just greedy. Our social club is for men and women, but there aren't any men. I think Wendy the Warden and me must be putting them off. There was a quiz about food and drink, but we didn't win. I heard that poor old Rosie has retired. I didn't know her very well, but I know she worked very hard with Tricia and Sir David Monks. We all miss Rosie. I hope she comes back to see us after she's retired. I think my friend John should retire. He's older than Moses. Have a very happy retirement, Rosie. Don't get drunk and get arrested. That's my friend John's job. We all miss you, Rosie. Lots of love, Julia. Well, thank you, Julia. The credit for saving the resource centre from closure and all the hard work must go to Rosie and Tricia. And there are some wonderful things going on at the Resource Centre. On the 11th of November, Armistice Day, they are having a display of poppies like the Tower of London outside the centre. And the sale. Joe, a helper at the centre, has this appeal for you to provide bird seeds to sell. Here she is. 
Hi, I'm Jo. I'm a service user at the centre. Um, I'm just after some bird seed, bags of bird seed, because we've made some bird feeders for the poppy day and wondered if people would donate some bird seed to go in them so we could sell them for the centre. Thank you in advance. And as November the 11th, or Armistice Day, falls on a Saturday, that's why the uh, Resource Centre having a big display there, so be there if you can. In the centre there is some one-to-one computer sessions led by Julia's friend John and I am delighted to welcome a new contributor to Postbag who makes use of them and that's Wendy. She writes, my name is Wendy and I attend the Thursday morning IT sessions to improve my typing. I wonder if anyone likes horses and is interested in knowing a little about them. I have owned horses for over 60 years and still have one, which I look after and ride. A lot of people think that you can just buy a horse and put it in the field, leaving it there until they want to ride it. The finding and buying of a suitable horse can take some time and should not be rushed. Finding somewhere safe to keep him is not always easy either. In the wild, horses have large areas to roam and graze. When they are domesticated, they are often put in little paddocks with hardly any grass, or on a farm with very rich grass. Either of these situations can cause stomach or foot problems. In the winter, Horses need shelter from the wind and rain and may need to wear a waterproof rug which will need checking every day. In the summer they need shade to get away from flies and may need to wear a fly sheet and hood to protect them from nasty bites. Again, these will need to be checked daily as some horses are very good at getting them off. Whether horses are kept out all the time or partially stabled, uh, his feet will need regular attention. He will need worming several times a year and should have yearly tetanus and flu injections as well as having his teeth rasped. All of this and more can be expensive and time-consuming, but horses are lovely creatures and well worth it. Wendy asked if she thought, if I thought the article would be suitable for postbag. Well, thank you, Wendy. It's very suitable indeed. One of your fellow listeners, Bob Syme, he rides horses. And if you're interested, I could attach a lapel microphone to you and we can have a recording of you actually riding it. But please let me know if you are interested. Don't feel obliged. But just an idea. But Please write more, it would be lovely to hear from you and read your articles out and it's great for you to share your writing with the wider audience. That's fantastic. Uh, Graham Whale likes to make listeners aware of, of what's going on in the city. Here he is to talk about plans for City Centre South which were mentioned in the news last week. Well, what is becoming another fiasco, or a fiasco, I should say, is this City Centre South project. Um, 
20 years ago, say, the council had a rather grandiose vision of what the city centre should be like in the future, with rooftop gardens and recreation areas, an artificial river which ran along Corporation Street. All of these things have been scaled down now. This will be the third time that this development company have submitted plans for City Centre South, and I suspect the housing development within it will finish up as student accommodation. Thank you, Graham. It seems that once you modernise a city centre, they need to keep modernising it to stop it looking dated. But towns like Leamington Spa, with its Georgian buildings, seem to have a timeless quality. What do you think? Now, old-fashioned things are good. Uh, Edwina went to Kings Hill Nursery near Baggington recently, where there were examples of weaving, and it reminded her of making a tea cosy, which is still doing its job. The first thing that I ever weaved was when I was age 11 at school. It was a tea cosy. So I had the card made in the tea cosy shape with the zigzag at the top round the edges, for you to weave a shape and I used different colours all the way through. I padded it with a thick wad of cotton wool and the lining was a good wool type uh, material. I gave that tea cosy to one of my aunties and she used it every day, year after year. Whenever I saw her now and again, I'd say, oh, is the tea cosy? She'd say, fine, it's doing just as well. She was 81 when she died, and that tea cosy was still in use. Perfect. How about that for quality then? Keep smiling, everybody. Bye. Well, I go to a music group called the Nostalgics, and there's a man called Arthur sings, I like a nice cup of tea in the morning. And I sang, with a lady's help, We are the Oval Teenies, happy girls and boys, from the advert I used to listen to on Radio Luxembourg. Were you an Oval Teenie? Or do you remember the advert or memories of listening to Radio Luxembourg? Now, Daphne Palmer sends her very best wishes to you and says she misses the Monday Club. Well, thank you, Daphne. Last Monday, I invited a survival expert, uh, Alex from Wild Earth, to come to the Monday Club. His great-grandma was a Native American, and he did look like one. And his great-granddad was an Australian, and the members all tried playing the didgeridoo with tremendous success. And thanks to a suggestion by Mark, a trustee of the Resource Centre and listener, I invited a witch to the next meeting, about a week before Halloween. It was with trepidation that I walked up the garden path with a letter for her, 
and I was greeted by a notice on the door saying, Home is where the broom is. So maybe Julia will write a report on these two meetings if she's not been turned into a frog. <laughs> so, tell us how you used to celebrate Halloween, apple, donkey, etc. Well, thank you for your messages this week. Uh, well, you can send us a message by ringing up the Resource Centre on 024 7671752 and pressing 5 for uh, Come to Talk a Newspaper. You can even ring up me, uh, David Monks, and that's uh, 024-76-598484 if you want. Right, thank you very much. Okay, bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Your postbag for this week with Dave. Now, following postbag, here's your fortnightly roundup of entertainment in Coventry with Sarah. Yes, hello there, and welcome to this edition of What's On in Cov. Now, I'm going to start with the Albany. Well, they're first alphabetically, and also I do find their website the easiest to navigate. The world-famous Elvis show 2023 is coming to the theatre on Saturday the 4th of November. Starring and produced by Chris Connor, this is officially described as breaking box office records. Chris is joined on stage by a 12-piece live band. The performance starts at 7.30 and ticket prices are £29. I'm going to try not to sing this introduction. The Adams Family. Oh, well, I have. Yes, youth operetta group YOG is performing The Adams Family at the theatre from Wednesday the 8th of November till Saturday the 11th of November with a matinee on the Saturday at 2.30 but each night the performance is at 7.30. If you don't know the Adams family, this show is all about a family that is, well, shall we say, strange and eccentric but at the same time intriguing. Now, ticket prices... Senior citizens and children, aged 3 to 15, are £18, with adults £20. Unwaged people are also 18 So if you want to know more about either of those or book a ticket, phone their box office on 024 7699 8964 So moving on down the alphabet to the Belgrade whose website I find the second of the three easiest to navigate A show for everyone aged three and above is coming to the Belgrade for half term week well 
for the Tuesday and Wednesday, that is October the 31st and Wednesday the 1st of November. The Schmeds and the Schmooze. Music, laughs, interplanetary adventure for everyone. Now the show is on on October the 31st at half past four with ticket prices £18. And then on Wednesday, November the 1st, there are two performances, one at half past ten in the morning and one at half past one with ticket prices from £10. I think if you're interested in that, you better phone just to make double sure. Now, moving totally down a gear and actually to the other theatre at the Belgrade, B2. I, Daniel Blake, runs from Wednesday the 8th till Saturday the 11th of November. Described as a touching and vital story of how people come together in the face of adversity and how sometimes creating a family to support you just isn't enough. This runs at 7.45 with matinees at 2.15 on Thursday and Saturday. Tickets are from £10. The box office for either of those shows, The Schmeds and the Schmooze or I, Daniel Blake, 024-7655-3055. But don't forget, it's only limited opening hours by phone, 10.30 till 2. Now, moving down further in the alphabet and the hardest website I find to navigate because it's got so many filters, Warwick Art Centre. For one night only, you can see the comedian Jimmy Carr, not to be confused with Alan Carr. Jimmy Carr starring in his one-man show, Terribly Funny 2.0. This will be on November the 1st at 7.30 with tickets from £35. Now I'm giving very advanced notice for this because I think it might be a good seller. There is a Tina Turner tribute. Gosh, try saying that. Tina Turner tribute on November the 26th at 7pm with tickets from £10. So if you're interested in either of those shows, that is Jimmy Carr or the Tina Turner Tribute, ring their box office on 024 7649 6000. And I promise Julia and Co., I will bring you something connected to the C word in the next edition. You know, that one where jingle bells. Ugh, don't go there yet. It's only October. Anyway, bye, folks. 
Now Sarah has started this fortnightly What's On in Coventry feature, maybe you have a particular venue or venues you'd like regular information about. Let us know via our answer phone, 024-7671-7522, then option 5 for the talking newspaper. For the last few weeks, Margaret has been talking about characters buried at Paxton Arboretum in London Road Cemetery. She now starts different stories, but again taken from Heritage Park Times, Historic Coventry Trust 2023. And this week, it's about Stevenson's viaduct and the loop line. On the 17th of September 1838, a landmark in the pioneering age of railways was reached as the first passenger train puffed its way into Birmingham from London. At just over 112 miles long, the London and Birmingham Railway was the first mainline link between the capital and the rest of the country. It had taken five years to build, employed 20,000 people and cost £5.5 million, more than double the original budget. Its engineer, Robert Stevenson, had carved out the route with tunnels, bridges, cuttings and viaducts, including the structure that crossed the River Sherbourne as the line made its way into Coventry. The Sherbourne Viaduct, a central brick arch with three smaller arches on either side, is still part of the main West Coast line and will now become a fascinating historical feature in the new Heritage Park. Its Grade 2 listing, conferred by English Heritage in 2015, described it as an early example of a structure dating from the pioneering phase of railway development, well-detailed and skilful in handling the engineering challenges of crossing the River Sherbourne and designed by one of the most important transport engineers of the 19th century. To build it, the railway company paid local landowners, including Mr Eyre Evans Kelly of Charterhouse, almost £3,000 for the fields that it crosses, as well as compensation for buildings destroyed and rights of access affected. Beneath the viaduct's embankment, largely hidden from view, lies what local folk have long known as the Folly Lane Tunnels. As part of the Heritage Park development, the decorative portals leading into the main tunnel are set to be restored. The Railway Heritage Trust, which funds historic restoration projects around the rail network, has indicated that, in principle, it is prepared to offer a grant to help to restore the portals. Tim Headley-Jones, director of the Trust, said, I visited last year and was very impressed. We have not given any grant to the area in the past, but we are potentially looking at doing so now. Close to the viaduct, the Humber Road Junction marks the beginning of the Coventry Loop Line, opened in August 1914 to divert goods traffic away from the city's congested mainline station. The Loop Line, which stands at the heart of plans for walking and cycling trails in the new Heritage Park, was only very rarely used for passenger journeys. In its heyday, it serviced Coventry Wholesale Market, the Morris Sidings at Courthouse Green, Coventry Ordnance Works and Bell Green Goods Yard. 
But in October 1963, the junction was severed as part of the electrification of the West Coast Line. After that, it was used as a long siding on Gosford Green, principally for traffic destined for the motor industry. The line finally closed in 1981 when its main user, Chrysler Linwood Plant in Scotland, was shut down. After 40 years, it's now coming back to life as part of a walking and cycling network that will eventually link Gosford Green and Charterhouse. Phase 1, a walkway linking Gosford Green with Humber Avenue, close to Gosford Park School, opened last September. Work on phases 2 and 3, making a connection between Humber Avenue and the Folly Lane Tunnels via Terry Road, is underway and will be completed later this year, 2023. Graham Tate from Historic Coventry Trust says that the project has attracted a number of funders, including Seven Trent Waters Community Fund, which has contributed almost £200,000. The aim, he adds, is to improve access to the area so that Charterhouse can open itself up to its neighbours. We have three schools in close proximity and we want to get them involved. For a long time it's been a hidden area and it's been our vision that Charterhouse should fit within a wider landscape. Opening up the area, he says, does not mean making it a well-manicured parkland. Local residents value the wildness of it and we want to ensure that it remains as wild and natural as possible. The Freeman's catalogues over the years have illustrated the changing fashions, showing the evolving social history over the decades the catalogues have been published. But they're now more, and now no more, I think, and now Freeman's rely on internet shopping. In this concluding part, Bill recounts the 1970s, as written by Daniel Jones. When the 1970s came, catalogues were nudging a thousand pages, and Freeman's was getting a name for selling the latest fashions. In the 1970 edition, carpets, curtains and sofas are bright and garish patterns. Curiously, the Axminster carpets and striking white patterns were adv- advertised with babies crawling on them, and a male model going off flannel pyjamas, is photographed smoking. From the 1975 book, a maxi dress in green, pink or yellow could very easily be seen on red carpets today. Bikinis have replaced swimsuits too. Men's ties are wide, mostly paired with either yellow or brown shirts. A page of Industrial wear work clothes, including overalls, boiler suits and warehouse coats, shows it was still a time in the UK when jobs in factories and warehouses were more common than those in offices. The customer base was wide. By 1979, all TVs were appearing. £269, one £1,255 in today's money, you were colour 14 inch TV was as deep as it was wide. Through the 80s, many Britons will remember picking what toys they were hoping for as Christmas presents, circling them in the Freeman's catalogue. Parents and grandparents will recall then working out 
what they could or couldn't afford. In the 85-86 edition, 50 of the 1,002 pages are toys and games, including 25.95 Cabbage Patch Kids, which were one of the biggest toy crazes of the decade. Home entertainment technology is front and centre, although the biggest TV is only 22 inches. Music was still played on vinyl and cassette tapes. CDs have not arrived yet. There was still a page of typewriters. The thing that would kill them off, and ultimately kill the Freeman's catalogue too, appeared for the first time on page 992. Home computer. The Commodore 64 cost £379.95. £1,115 in today's money had a fraction of the power of an iPhone. But there were still reminders of the past. Despite central heating becoming more common, many homes still have fires. There is a page of fire guards and pokers. In the 90s, internet shopping, which would ultimately kill off the catalogue business, was still a long way off and the 1994 catalogue was 1,000 plus pages. Paying for products weekly by credit was still a draw for Freeman's customers, especially for big ticket items. It was a time when credit cards were still not as widespread as today, mostly the preserve, pie owners, owners and buy now pay later offers like Kana were still two decades away. The biggest TV is now a 28-inch Hitachi for £799.99, pence, for £1,600 in today's money, and was £18 for 44 weeks, then a final weekly payment of £7.99. It was not long after the push-up Wonderbra had taken Britain by storm, Freemans gave it almost a full-page picture. Male models looked like they were from boy bands, like Backstreet Boys, modelled cut-off denim shirts. The air fryer was still a long way off. Electric deep-fat fryers, cooked chips in four litres of oil, were popular. Music systems had CDs, tapes and vinyl. Tapes were still the most popular way to listen to music on the go. There were also compact disc players that were portable, costing £200. Computers were still not commonplace. There were now five pages of video game consoles. In the noughties, the 1208 page of the 2005 catalogue celebrated 100 years of Freeman's. Technology for the home takes up yet more space with 29 pages of televisions alone. Flat-screen TVs that dominate today's homes have begun to appear. The biggest, 42-inch, costing £1,499, £2,500 in today's money, would be hard to find today, dwarfed by the huge screens we now take for granted. Netflix was still seven years away from launching in the UK, 
to change how we watched those TVs. DVDs are in their pomp, with pages of box sets on sale. Hi-fis are still popular, with CDs the main way to listen to music at home. But there are six pages of MP3 players, including the iPod, eventually killed off CDs. They, in turn, had killed off tapes and vinyl. There is a page of sat-navs with a tom-tom, remember those? Costing £499.99. There are four pages of landline phones, but also ten pages of mobile phones. The world was changing. Just as Freeman has gone to rest, so we've lost one of our great TV personalities, interviewers and chat show hosts, Michael Parkinson. This tribute to Parky was written by Douglas McFerguson in The People's Friend and is read by Elaine. From John Wayne to Nelson Mandela and Madonna to Miss Piggy, Sir Michael Parkinson interviewed everyone who was anyone. Over the course of 40 years, he became as recognisable as many of his guests, known to one and all simply as Parky. The BBC's Director-General Tim Davey said, Michael was the king of the chat show, and he defined the format for all the presenters and shows that followed. He interviewed the biggest stars of the 20th century, and did so in a way that enthralled the public. Michael was not only brilliant at asking questions, he was also a wonderful listener. Stephen Fry described being interviewed by Parkey as impossibly thrilling. Parkey's skill came from a genuine interest in his guests. The host used his body language to win his guests' confidence, unbuttoning his jacket, leaning towards them and keeping eye contact. There comes a moment when their eyes change, he explained. You can see them relaxing, and then they'll sit back. Then you know you've got them. Michael was born in March 1935 in the village of Cudworth, near Barnsley, South Yorkshire. His father was a miner, a job Michael described as dangerous and nasty, and one he was determined to avoid. A keen cricketer, he played for Barnsley alongside later England star Jack Boycott when they were both teenagers. Leaving school at 16 with two O-levels, he began his career as a reporter on the South Yorkshire Times. In the introduction to his book The Best of Parkinson, he described how he modelled himself on Humphrey Bogart and cycled between Yorkshire pit villages in a trench coat and fedora with a label in the hat band marked Press. During national service in the Royal Army Pay Corps, he became the Army's youngest captain at the time. Back in Civvy Street, Michael worked for the Manchester Guardian and the Daily Express, before moving into television on the late-night current affairs show, 24 Hours. His own show, Parkinson, was first broadcast by the BBC in 1971. Including breaks and a switch to ITV, it ran until 2007, during which time he interviewed 2,000 guests. 
One of his first big names was Orson Welles. Backstage, Welles ripped up Parkinson's list of questions. What am I going to do now? the fledgling host demanded. We'll talk, the actor told him. Parky's favourite interviewee was Muhammad Ali, with whom he sparred four times on air. He was the most extraordinary man I have ever met, Michael said to the boxer. He was also one of two people who you knew would add two million viewers to your shows as soon as you announced he was on. The other was Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly appeared on Parkinson more often than any other guest, a record 15 times. For another show, the schedule was rearranged to interview Richard Burton in the afternoon, for fear that he might be inebriated later. A makeshift audience was convened from BBC staff, including canteen chefs still in their whites. Burton remarked that when he saw them he thought the men in white coats had come to take him away. Comedian Peter Kay was once employed to warm up the audience for Parkinson, before becoming famous enough to be on as a guest. Michael later appeared in Peter's video with Tony Christie for their number one single, Is This the Way to Amarillo? In 1974, Parkey appeared alongside such as James Coburn and Christopher Lee on the cover of Paul McCartney's album Band on the Run, on the condition that Macca would go on his show in return. It took Paul McCartney 25 years to return the favour. I owed him one, the former Beatles said of his 1999 appearance. It's been a long time coming, but it's here. Among the celebrity revelations Parkey elicited was that Victoria Beckham's pet name for her husband David was Golden Balls. The moniker stuck to the footballer forever after. Not every show went smoothly, including a frosty encounter with Meg Ryan. Frustrated by her one-word replies, Parkey asked the actress what he th- she thought he should do at that point. Wrap it up, she replied. Nearly twenty years later, the host told the Radio Times, I wish I hadn't lost my temper with Meg Ryan. I was quite obviously angry with her, and it's not my business to be angry with my guests. I could have done better. Michael also put his foot in it when he asked a young Helen Mirren about her equipment. Pressed to explain himself, he amended it to your physical attributes. Do you mean my fingers? The actress glared at the by then red-faced presenter. Parkey's greatest adversary was Rod Hill's violent puppet, Emu, who grabbed him by the nose and knocked him out of his chair. When Michael later appeared as a guest on Room 101, he got his revenge by beheading Emu in a guillotine, saying, Goodbye, you foul beast! Parkey retired his chat show in 2007 with a special two-hour-long episode featuring David Beckham, Sir Michael Caine, Sir David Attenborough, Dame Judi Dench, Dame Edna Everidge, Sibylle Connolly, Peter Kay and Jamie Cullum. 
The episode was watched by 8.3 million viewers. Frank Sinatra was the one that got away, the presenter admitted. Otherwise, I've met everyone I have ever wanted to meet. Parkinson was ranked 8th in a list of 100 greatest British television programmes, drawn up by the British Film Institute in 2000. Away from his own show, Parkinson was a founding shareholder of TVAM and presented the weekend edition with his wife, Mary. He also presented Going for a Song, was a regular on Give Us a Clue, and was the second host of Radio 4's Desert Island Discs, replacing the show's late founder, Roy Plumley, in 1985. In 1980, Michael wrote a series of children's books about a family of dog-like creatures called the Woofits. He also presented Michael Parkinson Masterclass on Sky Arts from 2012 to 2014. He was made a CBE in 2000 and was knighted in 2008. When Parky passed away in August this year, aged 88, Elaine Page called him a legendary interviewer who will be remembered as the best of his profession. Thank you and good night, Michael Parkinson. The end of October is imminent, which means very shortly we'll be celebrating the failed attempt to blow up the House of Parliament by Guy Fawkes. The bonfires and firework displays are not to everyone's tastes, as Miranda Hart writes in Good Housekeeping, read by Nigel. Hello to you. Now, my lovely chum, have you been able to slow down during the darker autumn days? If you don't know to what I refer, fear not, you're forgiven, and a hearty welcome to my current autumnal musings. I find I'm ever more intentional in November of conserving energy and looking after my needs, if nothing else, because I'm one of those people who loves Christmas, and I wish to ding and dong merrily on high as much as possible in December. Also, as an introvert, I know my mind and body simply do not flourish by any means if I try to keep up with the world's pace. If I get sucked into a cultural belief that I'm selfish for looking after my energy, that I should be a constant party-goer, always on perfect form, always achieving, and on the list goes, then I will barely be surviving, certainly not thriving, but I believe we all deserve, and it's possible, to thrive. I will not bow to those pressures and rules that many of us have been brought up to believe are the ways to be a good human. It's simply not true. I said last month we're all loved and valuable for who we are, and the more we believe that, the more we will look after ourselves and our unique personality, sets of skills and talents the world and our loved ones need. If we believed we were valuable, we would give ourselves much more freedom particularly in regards to saying a word many of us find very, very hard to say. No, not quinoa, or quinoa, or whatever you care to call it, or the one I struggle with, anaesthetist, but let's not go down this rabbit hole, a teeny, tiny word that scares us silly to utter as a response in many situations, and that word is no. I see some people literally shake, when asked to an event because they don't feel they can say no 
It's as if they'd rather not have been invited at all. We seem to have forgotten we're humans who live in the body with limits. We cannot say yes to everything and risk a constant cycle of burnout. You'll be no less loved for saying no. It's okay to have limits. We all have them. It's new for me to accept mine. It's been a game changer. One thing I always say no to is fireworks night. I'm sure fellow introverts and highly sensitive people will be with me on this, but a night with large crowds, big bangs, fires, music and all other associated 5th November stimulation is hard for me to say no to. I need a day in bed to recover, and I suspect most wildlife needs about these three weeks. Don't you worry about them all shivering their dens and nests? Strangely, my dogs have never been scared of fireworks, perhaps to balance out my fear, but our furry beloveds uh, need much muffled affection to get them through. Has anyone invented dogs' earmuffs? If not, why not? The more I think about it, the more it's all too much. Another thought of a highly pitched, excited child shoving sparklers in my face makes me feel a bit weak. No, I shall make my own kind of fireworks, not a euphemism. Uh, I'll watch them from my window or on the TV or perhaps have a little fire pit and a hot chocolate with a friend or two. Though, as an aside, I will not entertain a toffee apple. I don't believe in them. I say either some sweets or have some fruit. Please don't combine two lovely treats into something strangely and surprisingly not delicious. This is incredibly hard to eat for fear of one's teeth being left upon said apple. No, thank you, please. It's fruit out of context is what it is. What next? Pineapple pasta? No, I'll go for tooth-friendly marshmallows at my fire pit. Oh, it feels so good to know yourself well enough to find your little ways to thrive to know when you'll do yourself and your friends a disservice for not saying so, not saying no. Look after yourself, my dear chum, especially if you're a Christmas lover like me, conserve your energy for the big month. On which note, I look forward to chatting to you then. For now, enjoy the bangs of November, however you do them. Now it's time for a bit of social history at the turn of the 19th and 20th century with another reminiscence of the hurdy-gurdy days, as told by Alan. At the first house in the court there lived a family named Trapp. There were two sons, as far as I can remember, and two daughters. One of them was just like her mother, jolly and always laughing, and the other one was very quiet and shy. Perhaps she took after her father, whom we never saw, as he was away in the army. It was easy to get recruits for the regular army in those days, as there was so much unemployment. The men were sent abroad and were away from home for long periods. Their wives used to go and meet them when they did come home to make sure of getting a fair share of their pay before it was spent at pubs on the way home. Mrs. Trapp was a large, fat woman, always washing and working for other people, as well as for her own family. Mam used to say she had a heart of gold, when there was any sickness around and anybody wanted help, it was always, send for Mrs. Trapp, she'll come. She used to deliver babies and lay out after death. There always seemed plenty of coming and going then. The undertakers and publicans must have done a roaring trade. 
To provide the money for a decent burial, a penny a week was paid into a club. Most families had a new baby every year, with a midwife in attendance, usually a middle-aged woman past childbearing herself. Grace was a great favourite with the Trapp family. In the afternoon when she came home from school, she would go into their house and have a cup of tea. Mrs. Trapp had no teeth. Nobody had dentures in those days. So she had to soften her pieces of bread in the tea and get them out with a spoon. She told Grace they were little fishes. Grace used to enjoy watching her get them out. She loved Mrs. Trapp. Our gran had one sister whose name was Martha. So very different was Martha from our gran. There had been nine in the family, and Gran and Martha were the only survivors, the rest having died either at birth or in childhood. Martha's children were all grown up when her husband, Uncle Will, died and left her a widow. She had been quite comfortably off during her married life. They had a nice little house with a very long garden, in a quiet street in a select neighbourhood, far above our house in much Park Street. She never came to see us, and Gran used to say she was stock up. Nam liked her, and sometimes on a Sunday afternoon in the summer she would take us to visit her, as it was on the outskirts of the town and more or less in the country. We used to love to go, as Uncle Will had lots of fruit bushes at the bottom of the garden, and we made excuses to go down there. Martha was very house-proud. When we descended on her unexpectedly, she would rush and lock the parlour door as she saw us coming in at the gate. In the parlour there was a suite of green plush furniture consisting of a sofa, two armchairs and four small chairs, all to match. The cushions on the sofa were never out of place. There was a linoleum on the floor with a black sealskin rug in front of the fireplace, a brass fender with fire irons, all polished bright, and an aspidistra in a green pot on a stand in the centre of the window. The lace curtains were looped back with green silk cord. The room was only used on very special occasions, like Christmas and birthdays. There was no piano. They hadn't been able to afford that. Our ma'am did envy this grandeur, and was miserable for days after we had been on a visit, saying every time uh, she wouldn't go there again, but she did. Martha had four children on her own, two boys and two girls, who were very well behaved. Uncle Will was a shoemaker by trade, and we were always fascinated by him. He had a very deep voice and an enormous stomach. We used to sit in the corner by the fire in a big armchair, smoking a long-stemmed clay pipe which seemed to rest on his large stomach. After he died, Martha had to give up her nice little home and go and live with her daughter, Annie. Poor inoffensive Martha, how she must have grieved! Annie's husband was a consumptive, and she had to take in washing to keep their three children. She had a very hard life, and there couldn't have been much comfort from poor Martha either. Annie's husband's name was Ben. He was a very quiet sort of chap, very tall and extremely thin. He had a terrible cough which racked him to pieces, and it was awful to hear him. He couldn't go to work. He used to make cloth rugs up and eke out a living. We were always collecting old trousers and coats for him to cut up, and he became too ill. He was really slowly dying. When our gran died, Martha used to come and visit us more often. She always wore a little black bonnet on her head, tied under her chin with a broad black silk ribbon, 
a short black beaded cape, very shabby and green with age. She had a quivering, tremulous voice and always sounded as if any minute she would burst into tears, but she never did. Poor, pathetic little Martha, so very different from her coarse sister, our gran. The only resemblance being the big brown eyes. And to bring this week's outlook to close, Dave tells you about the recent Sharabang mystery tour he went on with the Macula Society. Hello there. It's a lovely sunny morning and I'm going for a day trip, a mystery tour with the Macula Support Group and we're going on a shower bang. That's a Harrington's coach, a blue and cream old coach. And one of them was used on Doctor Who. I'm on this beautiful old coach. I'm sitting next to William, member of the Macula Society. So it's beautiful, isn't it? It is very The coach is very good. It's very old. A really good old fashioned coach. Yeah. And you don't see many of these about in those days. Hey, now, I understand, William, that, that you go on holiday by yourself. Some quite long distances, don't you? Go long distances, yeah. Yeah, you went, you went to Glamis Castle. Glamis Castle? Yeah. Dundee. Yeah. Edinburgh. That was one four day trip. Yeah. Now, now that's where the Queen Mum used to live, Glamis Castle. Glamis Castle is where the Queen Mum used to go for her holidays. Yeah. It's where Princess Margaret was born. Yeah. And you actually met the Queen Mum. And, and you, you did something for her, didn't you? I did. Um, the Queen Mum, the, it was at the um, 1980 Queen's Garden Park. Uh, the Queen Mum said, excuse me, would you mind doing me a favour and then get a crate of wine? And I said, okay Mum, I know where to go and get a crate of wine from. And she told me where to go and sent another guy with me as well. So we both came back with a crate of wine each. And, and, she, um, and she said, that, um, thank you very much and here's um, a present for you. A bottle of wine. Well, today we're going to set off and get up to a top speed of about 18 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> right, so when we hear the horn, we have to wait. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Great, okay. Here we go. Here we go, we all wave as he pops his horn. Hey, sounds great, the engine. Wonderful, we're off down Hill Street where the Macula Society have their meetings on a Tuesday. The Bonds Hospital Flats. Okay, right. One, two, three. Uh, the wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round all day long. Hey, we're just waving at people, going past the road transport museum. Hi! The Harrington's coach has got its own style of air conditioning. It's got the door wide open and the window. We're waving at people in Stretton on Dunsmore now. Well, we're going along narrow lanes with I don't see any passing places either. We've been going along the Foss Way and through the villages off the Foss Way, and now we're going towards Hilltop Farm where there's a cafe.
I'm nourished. Okay, do you think you can describe the decoration on the, the lovely coach, please? Well, the coach is used very often for weddings, yes. and so he's got at the front of it the ribbons and the big rosettes and bows coming from the um, side uh, pieces at the yeah, side the, of the bus, the, the and, down, yeah, and then down to the uh, radiator at the front of the, the coach, and then also at the very bottom on uh, just above where the uh, number plate is. They're white. Wonderful. Speaking to the driver, Bob, can you talk about your fabulous old coach, please? Absolute pleasure. <laughs> I've got this Bedford OB that was built yeah. in 1948, uh, 29 seats, and we're off on a little trip around Warwickshire, and I can't say any more because it's a bit of a mystery. That's fine. It's a magical mystery to That's us. what it is. Oh, hello. I'm speaking to uh, Cynthia Stanton now. Can you talk about the animals, please, uh, near the cafe of this farm shop? Well, we're very lucky we've got the cafe because once you're in, you can then look out on all the animals. They've got, they're split up into different fields and with wooden fences around them and they are so happy and content and we are leaving the farm shop and cafe now bye we're all waving at people right, the, the coach just stalled on the hill and i think it's picking up It's going towards the top of the hill. It's nearly there. Come on. Come on. Right. The uh, coach is packed up and uh, a modern coach has arrived to take us to Bubbenhall for a meal. Peter, Pete and Joe, what do you think of the outing? Dave, it's another fine mess you've got me into. <laughs> it's quite an adventure, isn't it? I'm really glad I came. Really enjoying it. Yeah, really good. Hello, what's your name? And my name is Jill. I live here. I'm a resident in Bubbenhall. Oh, it's a lovely place, isn't it? Because yeah. my wife lived here next to the malt shovel until she was three. Oh, lovely, yeah. She yeah. used to get the water from the spring. Yep, there yeah, the water. <laughs> Mines were strongly come to Bubbenhall in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the three horseshoes, the nice pub, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's lovely. Now it's all been refurbished and we're up here nearly every night. We'll spend all our pension here. <laughs> I'm speaking to Kath and Georgina at our table in the three horseshoes. So it's what do you like about the macular support group? Well, I go to the group to help the money. So I take money off people for the so the trip today, um, the raffle that Kath helps along with the raffle, the bring and buy. Basically, any time there's any money involved, we get involved. Okay. Yeah. What do you do, Kath? Well, similar. Um, we, we try and sell the raffle tickets, but a lot of the people can't see. They'll hand you a, a, a palm full of coins, you know, yeah. to, to take it, and um, or they give you a note. You have to make sure you give them the correct change back because they can't see. Yeah. 
and, and we just help out like that really yeah so where does the group meet Georgina the group meet on a Tuesday the third Tuesday of every month they meet up great uh, what time 10.30 to 12.30 10.30 okay. in the end ok thanks a lot William thank you it's at Bonds Hospital Hill Street which is just off Corporation Street that's it ok we are going home on the replacement Harrington's coach and we're off home thank you very much and that's all from the mystery tour on the Showerbang coach with the Macular Society bye for now the revealed mystery of that tour ends our programme for this week so from the team and myself Peter Walters reminding you not to forget to turn your clocks back on Saturday night it's goodbye till next week